Hey, Daniel, Jason here. I'm not sure if I left you a message last night or not. If I did, it was pretty low energy. But just want to say I enjoyed your latest episode. Reference the Elf. I played in a Delving Deeper game earlier in 2020, and played it, which is basically like a slightly modernized OD&D rule set. And in there, the Elves have to pick, you know, which they're going to be, a warrior or a, you know, a fighting man or a, a magic user. And, and that was pretty interesting. I, I did enjoy that dynamic, so I get what you're saying. But look forward to the next episode in your series. Keep up the great work. And I'm definitely enjoying your YouTube videos as well. So keep up that as well. Talk to you later. Hey, Daniel. My name is Taylor from the uh, Audio Dungeon Discord, uh, or as I've been calling it lately, the Daniel Norton Fan Club. I uh, just wanted to call in, give you a heads up. I'm looking forward to that document you were talking about. Um, I've been getting into Chainmail and OD&D lately, and I've been really enjoying uh, both this podcast and some of the stuff you've been putting on YouTube. So keep up the good work, and uh, looking forward to the next video. So that was Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Taylor. Thanks, guys, for listening and your comments. Yeah, so hopefully this episode will start to wrap up some of that stuff. Taylor, I'll have the PDFs done hopefully within the next month. And uh, yeah, let's get to it. Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel, and in this podcast, well, this season of this podcast anyways, I'm talking about using the chainmail combat rules for OD&D, essentially. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I've actually got this fascination with different combat rules, and, I, and maybe I'll talk about those in future episodes, but I've I've done alternative combat many times. I, I often will say combat's my least favorite part of most RPGs, so I'm constantly looking at ways to make it... Well, in the past, it used to be more simple. <laughs> in this case, it's not more simple, but it's definitely, I think, more engaging and more fun. I guess I'm separating it uh, from the from the rest of the RPG. I think making it a mini game, which I think uh, maybe isn't a popular way to operate. I think a lot of people like the idea of like immersion and they don't want to step out of the game. So rules get out of the way. But I feel like it's almost impossible to do that with combat anyways. So why not just make it its own little breakaway game? And I think that's what this will accomplish once I've kind of uh, got it all down. I am starting to uh, consolidate and write up these as uh, I guess a rules supplement, for lack of a better word. Uh, all the things I've talked about. Um, been going a little bit slow because I wanted to do more playtesting, but um, mostly I've got it worked out. The man-to-man system, I want to playtest a couple more times to see if I find anything that's odd or that I want to change. But otherwise, um, the fantasy and troop combat, which we talked about before, are basically uh, ready to go. I've tested them multiple times. Um, I've made some slight changes. One thing I'm working on currently is incorporating order of play so that I can, you know, like, what what is the process of play? If you look at Mulvade Basic, for instance, I I like it very much because of the fact that, you know, uh, initiative is rolled, then morale, then, uh, you know, the uh, missile fire or whatever order it goes in. And I kind of like that. So I'm doing that here. I mean, that basically comes from Chainmail, if you look at the Chainmail initiative, which is what I'm using. A couple of things I've changed. Um, one is that I'm making most actions uh, simultaneous in a lot of ways. So that's changing a few things. So I'll get into that when I get back over the, when I go back over the system again. But in this particular episode, what I want to talk about is saving throws. Because 
As I mentioned before, as soon as you start changing a, a major conceit of the game, which is like hit points, which is what I'm doing in the system, you need to start factoring a lot of other parts of the game. Like, how does that affect other parts of the game? And the saving throw, of course, is important for any kind of damage-doing spell or uh, poisons and things like that. Mostly what I've decided is that I'm going to go with the idea that, in, well, in adventuring, you are going to encounter things that could possibly cause damage. And those things will essentially attack you, for lack of a better word, on the troop combat system. So if you have heard those podcasts, you might understand what I mean there. If not, I'll quickly describe it. Essentially, uh, any heroic type, so all player characters, uh, subtract a number of, or they, they compare their number of hit dice they have against the damage that's being thrown. And if they have a greater number of hit dice than the damage, they basically don't take damage. They've avoided taking any damage. So if you're a three hit die, uh, you're, you've got three hit dice. Let's say you're a fighter, you got three hit dice, and two orcs attack you and they each cause one hit die, you know, uh, of damage, you would essentially take no damage because you've managed to avoid the damage. So using that same kind of logic uh, is what I'm doing with things like pit traps. If you're, which sucks if you're first level, if you're first level and you have one hit die and you fall in a 10-foot pit, you're going to die because it does one hit die of damage. Uh, this might seem harsh, but if you think about most first level characters and the average hit points they have and the average damage they take, it basically works out to be the same. So you could obviously as a DM add some kind of a, an additional saving throw um, if you want there, but we're going to talk about that in a second. The the idea here would be, you know, again, even like a poison gas trap, it would just, it would have a certain attack, right? So if it's a three dice uh, poison cloud, if you are four hit dice, it doesn't affect you. If you're three or below, you know, you die. This, again, might seem harsh. So this is where saving throws come in for, at the very least, for half damage. So I wanted to, I started to, to look back at uh, the saving throws. Now, you'll hear a lot um where people talk about saving throws in D&D are like weird and arbitrary and one's versus dragon breath, the other one's worth a magic wand or whatever. Like why, what, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, people love to say how D&D doesn't make any sense. Those are the people, of course, who have never read the beginning stuff. So uh, I won't get too much into that, but uh, it kind of does make sense because if you look at Chainmail, which is, to my understanding, where the saving throws came from, characters or units, or men, or however you want to describe them, do not have a saving throw, per se. Monsters have a saving throw connected to them. So if you are attacked by a dragon, it will say something like, you know, non-heroic uh, creatures are killed, um, heroic creatures, or might be like uh, heroes, uh, are saved, on a, a roll of seven or better, on two dice, you know, uh, dwarves, I don't know, I'm just making something up, dwarves are saved on a roll of nine or better on two dice. So it'll literally say under the dragon what the person being attacked, the defender, I would say, what their saving throw is. So the saving throw is directly connected to the attack form that's hitting them. So this is true of the dragon, it's true of things like basilisk with turn to stone, and it's also true of wizards uh, and the like that are throwing magical spells or, or using those kind of items. So if you look at saving throws that way, then they, they make sense, right? What I was looking at was Jason Vey's great work, which I've talked about a bunch of times, and he's got kind of like a single saving throw. 
And I started thinking about this again because I was listening to Down in the Heap uh, podcast with Rob, and he was saying how he is going to use Swords and Wizardry complete and was and made a quick discussion about that they used a single saving throw. I, I do like that mechanic. I like the single saving throw. I think the less stuff that you have to look at your character sheet every level and change, the better. You know, um, I like things to be on the fly. I love the idea that, like, if you look at, like, older editions of D&D, like, let's say, first edition with the Monster Manual, you would see that a lot of monsters have, like, little mini-games. Again, going back to that idea. These little mini-games within them. And that, again, is like chainmail. If you're fighting against a basilisk, it tells you how the basilisk turns people to stone or doesn't turn people to stone. It has nothing to do with what's on the your character sheet or however you would call it of chainmail, your list of troops. Now, that being said, my first inclination was, you know what? I'm going to get rid of saving throws and I'm literally going to attach them to the monsters the same way that chainmail does. Because I really like that. I think it's interesting. Um, it's less that the players have to worry about or know, and it falls on the side of the DM. And then, you know, using the classic you know, thought process of DM fiat, right? We can always go, well, this is a small dragon. So it says here they need to roll seven or better. I'm going to say they need to roll six or better. That this kind of stuff, right? You can basically adjust it. You're making a trap. You can be like, well, this trap, the saving throw is this. And you can just make it up on the spot because the saving throw is connected directly to the trap. The saving throw is connected directly to the monster. All that's fantastic. Um, And if you look at the way that chainmail set up, because you might be thinking this, it does actually differentiate between, like, it'll say something like, a hero needs this, a superhero needs this. So it, it, the level of the, the, the PC does come into play. At least the kind of zone of them, for lack of a better word, uh, in the, the way I'm writing up the game now, I'm using something I kind of got from Delving Deeper, which is kind of three levels, if you will, of play, which is your kind of normal uh, men. You've got your heroics, and then you've got your superheroics, and those are, you know, those are defined by their hit dice or the levels. So you could very easily do that, right? And there's only really, when you think about it, there's only a handful of monsters that this is even relevant for. Um, They would need to, based on the way I'm doing the rules anyways, do some kind of area effect type attack. um, Because if they are doing an an actual attack, they would just roll normally. Let's say they have a poison bite and you're either dead or you're not, right? So it's not like there's a saving throw there. If they they do enough dice to kill you, then you got killed by the poison. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's all narrative at that point. So a saving throw is not necessary there. It's really only necessary for things like Medusa or Basilisk or anything that, you know, clouds of, of poisonous gas and, you know, uh, fireballs that explode. And there is the problem right there. Spells. So, in Chainmail, there does not seem to be any saving throw for the vast majority of the spells they list there. Um, they're not listed at all. They just tell you the effect. It just works insofar as the system is concerned. There is no saving throw. The exception to this is the fireball and lightning bolt, which are kind of the standard wizard uh, things, which I believe, I'd have to look at it again, but I believe they can just always do. The spells in chainmail, you must roll to cast. And if you successfully cast it, then they are affected by it. It just is what it is. Um, there's not that many of them, but there are spells like Confusion and Slow and stuff like that that are very uh, very much an attack spell, as we would call it, and there is no saving throw. If the wizard succeeds, there's no save. You know, and I had a moment where I was like, well, maybe this should, spell should just succeed, you know? It's not like uh, magic users can cast tons and tons of spells. But then when you start thinking about things like Charm Person, that 
I don't want to say it's not fair because I hate to use terms like that, but it would be easy if there was no saving throw for a DM to just have a first level magic user bad guy charm the fighter in the party and to have them turn around and start cutting them to pieces. Because in OD&D, it says falls under your will or something like that. It's not this like the way they are in modern games where it's like, well, if it's something they might not do, then maybe they're, you know, they'll get. No, you just you do what they say when you fall for the charm person. So there needs to be a save versus spells. So this is kind of, I guess, where I'm where I'm looking for input, uh, which is why I'm throwing this out here. I bounced it back and forth in my head, and I'm not really sure where I want to be. I think what my gut tells me is to do a single saving throw, and that saving throw will be used primarily for spells. I suppose that a DM wanting to do whatever a DM wants to do might decide to ask somebody to save, uh, to use a saving throw for something else, you know, whether or not they fall in the pit, let's say. Um, so this saving throw almost becomes a fate or a luck type thing, right? It's not modified by anything but your level. So seemingly the longer you live, the the luckier you've been, right? So I guess you have higher luck. Um, and it'll just be a saving throw. And that saving throw will be applicable to, to spells. As far as monsters are concerned, I think I'm going to write into the handful of monsters where it's relevant what the effect would be. Because remember, if we're looking at this system overall, let's just take... Um, a dragon, for instance. If you are fighting on the troop combat, so you're a bunch of soldiers and you're charging at this uh, mountain and a dragon flies down and blows its breath on you, you're fighting in troop combat. Well, I mean, the way that that would typically work is that if you if it's blowing a breath of X number of hit dice and it's more than the hit dice of the, the troops and they're in the range of it, then they die, which to me makes 100% sense. You can have some heroic types uh, have a saving throw, like PCs, for instance, for half damage. And I think that's totally legit and fair. Um, and that I think I would certainly keep. Because otherwise, until you get to about third level, something like that's going to kill you. But again, taking away the idea of fairness and players being like, oh, what the hell, man? Like, yeah, you're uh, getting a dragon blowing its breath on you. I mean, you know. You're dead. I mean, I don't think that's that big of a deal, to be honest with you. Uh, and honestly, again, if a six-hit die dragon blows its breath on... Because I think the minimum hit dice dragon count is five. So if a... But let's just say six. If a six-hit die dragon blows its breath onto a non-heroic type, so first through third level, even if they make the saving throw, they're taking three dice, which means that they're probably going to die. So while it might seem unfair on the surface, if you really look at the numbers, the reality is is low-level characters are going to die by something like a dragon's breath. Uh, If you go to the second type of combat, man-to-man, obviously you don't fight a dragon on man-to-man combat because it doesn't have armor or a weapon, right? So that's not applicable. And then we look at fantasy combat, and in the way that's defined, the dragon wouldn't have its breath. I mean, it would use it narratively, but it would just you would just fight on the fantasy table. Like the the fact that it has dragon's breath would mean nothing. Uh, more than it just gets to fight as a dragon. So when you look at these combats and you think about it, it's like things like that are not really unfair when you think about it, like a dragon. I think the things you might want to consider is, now let's look at a basilisk. Let's look at the gaze of a basilisk, not the touch of it. So a basilisk, the way that I'm using the system now, or any kind of gaze type, Medusa, that kind of stuff, you would roll a six-sided die, right, When if anybody who's in the range that could possibly see it, on a roll of a four, five, or six, they see it. I mean, if they see it, 
they're turned to stone. I mean, you know, it, giving an additional saving throw to that is kind of like, well, you have a 50% chance to avoid it, and then on top of that, you have another saving throw. So there is this justification that there shouldn't be one at all unless you are of a certain uh, higher level that would allow for um, allow for that extra boost, which is exactly how it is in Chainmail. Heroes and superheroes and certain things can save against the... the, the Actually, I don't think they can save against the gaze at all. Um, I have to look at it again. But they save against the touch of it. Now, the touch of it is something different because, again, if I'm using troop combat and I have a basilisk, the if the basilisk rolls enough dice to touch you, so in other words, rolls enough to, to hit you, and you're dead, right? If, you, if it rolls anything under that, it didn't get you anyways. So there's no saving throw because it didn't touch you. So why should you... Um, why should you need a saving throw? In fact, this came out in a adventure I ran where... Um, there was a Medusa, and I'm thinking about this now, and what happened was the Medusa, the the the, the character said, oh, I'm going to put my face behind my shield so the Medusa, you know, so I don't see the Medusa, but it wasn't like a shiny shield to reflect back. It was just so I won't see it. So I had the Medusa run forward and grab the shield to pull it down so, so you'd be forced to look in its eyes. And I said, you know, if it, if it, hit, if it gets you, then it will have pulled the shield down, you know, and the player was like, okay, that makes sense. So I rolled, and I think he was fourth level, and she got four dice, so... Uh, she pulled it down. Now, again, he should be dead because she got four dice. But even at that moment, I let him make a save versus the, the petrification. He failed. He did turn to stone. But realistically, he should have just been turned to stone anyways. So I don't know that a saving throw in these circumstances is even necessary. The real problem that I have, um, and again, in man-to-man, you would not be fighting a Medusa man-to-man because a Medusa is not going to be using weapons and such. And you wouldn't... Um, well, if you fought the Medusa on fantasy combat, again, it would need to reduce you to zero hit die for you to be turned to stone. So all of these types of things, they don't necessarily need saves unless you want to make them something extra. The place where I really see the problem, if you want to say that, is... So I started looking through the spells. You've got Charm Person uh, on first level, which clearly, you know, you're going to want to give a save. Otherwise, that's going to be so broken. I think on second level, you have Phantasmal Force, which again... How do you determine whether or not somebody believes it or not, right? Is that a saving throw? Is that what should happen there? Um, and I had thought about doing this stuff uh, using ability scores. So this is the other thing I'm kind of thinking. Like maybe this is maybe this is the place where we use ability scores. You don't have that single save and you just say, hey, if somebody tries to charm person you, you have to roll three dice under your intelligence. Um, and if you fail, then you're charmed. Uh, it could also be something like, well, if they're lower level than you, then you can roll two dice under your intelligence. And if they're higher level, you roll four dice to make it a little bit, you know, so that level matters. And it's not just a straight up intelligence that makes a difference. You know, these are all options I'm kind of throwing out there. I'm kind of spitballing here to see if people have some some uh, thoughts about, maybe I'm missing something super obvious, but uh, I, I don't want to, you know, I feel like a saving throw, much like alignment, I guess, is one of those things that have been with D&D since the beginning. And it feels weird to get rid of them. You know, people often talk about, well, I don't use alignment, and I, and I get that, but it's not like it's been removed from the game, and there's a reason for that. I think that, and people talk about it a lot, right? It's it's part of the game. It's been part of the game since the beginning, so it's hard to just, like, take it away, even though I'm not sure in this particular version that it's necessary. You know, you just being of a higher level is saving you anyways, which is kind of what a saving throw does. Um, so, that, I mean, what are you guys' thoughts? Do you think that saving throws are necessary? Do you think it's unfair to uh, to just have things like Dragon Breath just kill people if they're of a certain level? Or do you think that 
uh, that would be fair to, or to have it happen versus making them roll dice and there's a small chance they might not die. I'm curious what people think about this because I do think this is a kind of an interesting topic. The spells, again, are something I'm just not sure about. I think that you could theoretically. In fact, what happened was I sat down with the with the book and I'm like, let me go through the spells and see how many spells I would need to write up a special rule for. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, it's a charm person. Oh, Phantasmal Force. But then I was like, oh, hold on. I need one for this one. Oh, I need one for this one. Oh, I need one for this one. And it turns out there's probably like more than a dozen spells, I think, in the original three books that I'd have to write special rules for. And again, this is not a big deal, but I wonder then if that's something that that is worthwhile or if just having a flat saving throw that people already understand is the better option. And this is, now I know that, uh, well, I don't know this, I don't know this, but I assume that most people listening to a podcast like this are probably running games as well or probably read through books anyway, so it's not like they're, uh, they, they wouldn't have this knowledge. But I think about the times where you know, I think about first edition, right? There was a Dungeon Master's Guide and there was a Player's Handbook, right? And I think the idea was, although we all, all of them as kids, because we all DM'd, but people who were just players might not have owned the DM Guide, which means they didn't know certain things. And certainly they probably didn't own the Monster Manual unless they just like reading about it, um, which means that you have a different kind of game, right? Like if I have a game that you don't, so where I'm getting at here is like, if you don't have the Charm Person spell, you might not know how it works, Right. And I guess you can, you know, this is meta knowledge anyways. I mean, a good role player will, 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 you know, they won't know how it works. They'll just play that their character doesn't know. But the idea that like a player might not know like what a spell does or how to avoid a spell until they encounter it or research it is kind of interesting to me. Right. Like, let's say that there's nobody has the Phantasmal Force spell. Then maybe none of the players should know that that's, you know, a willpower save or whatever. Uh, oh, willpower save. Now I'm getting into like a. And that's like third edition or whatever, right? Uh, uh, wisdom save it would be, I guess. Uh, maybe you know, uh, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they wouldn't know, you know, uh, how how it could avoid it or what might be the idea that it could be disbelieved, and that's like a thing, right? Um, so I think this is all kind of interesting. Uh, and saving throws are that thing. I mean, and I remember at times I've I've talked about saving throws before. I think I even talked about it on my YouTube channel because I think they're super interesting. That they to me saving throws are that moment in the the story like if you're reading a book where like the hero just escapes by some crazy thing that like what like that should not have happened but somehow you know they that little bit of their falling and that little bit of ledge sticks out and they grab it and they're able to hold on by their fingertips and they just survive it to me that's a saving throw I know that in more modern games like fifth edition saving throws are basically you throwing saving throws every five minutes because you save versus this save versus that but um, in the original game, I mean, they're really, if you think about how many times in an old school game you would actually need to throw a saving throw, it's not that often. And it's because they're very specific, right? If if somebody throws a, a death ray at you or you get hit by poison, which again is not going to be that common, uh, being turned to stone again is not that common. Oh, should turn my ringer off. Um, and, you know, maybe spells. It really depends on what you're fighting. But I think if you take your average, like, first level adventure, or even second level or third level, like a one through three adventure and like keep on the borderlands or something. And you look through that. I doubt that you would make that many saving throws if you played it by the book. Like if you just fought the creatures that you encountered, um, monsters might because the, the wizards casting, or I guess first level, they'd be a medium. Uh, they're, they're throwing, you know, a charm person spell here and there, but otherwise like saving throws are just not used that much because they're there to save you when you do something screwed up, right? They're a save. They're not a, uh, let's do something throw. They're not a skill check. They're a saving throw. So 
I wonder if they could be taken away and just reconnected to the monsters again. And yeah, I get that like if you were to eventually have 500 monsters in your your monster manuals and how D&D grew, I mean, they did it the right way, I'm sure, by having saving throws because it simplified the system. But I wonder, though, again, in my revamp from my home uh, brew, how necessary they really are. So let, let me know uh, if you think that uh, saving throws could be re- re- replaced. I guess technically 5e replaced saving throws with ability checks in a sense, right? Because you, you, they're modified by abilities. But something like that, you know, something like you get, you know, you take the handful of spells. Unless you think there's a spell somewhere, like is there a spell that you couldn't use an ability check to overcome? Like what, what spell do you know of that it'd be like, I wouldn't know what ability check to use to, to overcome this, right? Like maybe actually intelligence is not even the way to to overcome a charm person. And I know that they do base it on intelligence, but I would almost say that if charisma is force of personality, uh, perhaps it is your charisma that would allow you to, to not uh, be charmed. I mean, who knows, right? Or willpower, you know, is wisdom is like willpower, right? So this is the thing, right? You got to make that choice. And maybe it depends on who's charming you and what the way, how they're doing it, right? If it's some some kind of beautiful uh, succubus, you know, trying to uh, to charm you with, with their with their beauty and their uh, you know seductive way, maybe that's one uh, ability check, right? And if it is a uh, you know a, a a wizard using hypnosis type uh, activity to charm you, that's something else, right? Or you know they've got this like spinning uh, pinwheel, you know they're holding up, and you're looking at it, and you're, you're using all your willpower to resist it. Whereas like maybe it's your first force of personality um, uh, with the succubus, or maybe it's your intelligence with the succubus, knowing that like yeah, why is the succubus who's incredibly beautiful interested in me when I'm a you know <laughs> some you know three charisma adventurer, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I think. Uh, I think it's really interesting, and possibly that's the way to go with that. So let me know what you guys think. Uh, do you think saving throws are necessary? Do you think that it'd be cool to connect them directly to the monsters? Or do you like that it's a character skill? Um, and for things like spells, uh, do you think that using ability uh, as a way to overcome the saving throw uh, you know, dilemma there might be the way to go? Or if there should maybe just be a spell saving throw and then everything else is uh, based on the monster? So yeah, let me know. Uh, I will hopefully be testing the Mantman system a couple more times. Uh, in the next coming weeks. And then I, I'm writing up, like I said, these PDFs and I will uh, get all this together. I'll probably talk a little bit more about some of like, again, the little, the minutia, if you're interested in that, because this is one thing I find to be super interesting. When you change anything in the rules, there's always a chance that it will affect other things. And when you make a major change, like changing the combat system, it really does. It starts to really rub off and touch everything. It touches magic items. It touches the monsters. It touches the spells. Like all of this becomes uh, part of the rebuild in a sense or the, or the re- reimagining uh, of D&D. So in any case, uh, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I will talk to you soon.